Hello and welcome to the Fortune Co-Pilot Thought Leaders podcast. Transformational tips and tricks to help you work smarter. I'm Alan Coote. Now, the government's behavioural insight team started life inside Downing Street as the world's first government department dedicated to the application of behavioural sciences. Now, its stated aim is to make public services more cost-effective and easier to use, as well as enable people to make better choices for themselves. David Halpin is the chief executive of what has become known as the Nudge Unit. In fact, he has a book out called Inside the Nudge Unit. We'll talk to him about that very shortly. Now, David, the fact that this department exists at all may come as a surprise to some people, although it shouldn't because I know that you regularly publish what you're up to. Thanks for joining us on the line, by the way. Now, please tell me, though, first, the Behavioural Insights team, whose idea was it to set it up? This really originated um, with the incoming government, the Prime Minister David Cameron and his key advisor. Steve Hilton and others um, in 2010, although it also had support, interestingly, for the administrative side, particularly the then cabinet secretary in Britain, um, uh, Lord Gus O'Donnell. So it had support both from the political side, but also inside the administration. So did they sort of look for experts uh, and thought that this was a good idea or, or was it you that went to them and said, I think I've got something here, guys? Well, it was a kind of combination. So even before the 2000. 10 election, I was actually at uh, the Institute for Government and we did a paper called Mindspace, which was trying to show how you could use behavioral science. It was done jointly with the cabinet office. So it was sort of prepping the ground, not least because we'd seen what was happening in Washington. And um, we had done work previously, even inside government in strategy unit in the years gone by. Um, so we th- thought it was potential. I thought there was potential. I certainly had written in a previous book that governments should do this. But that then combined in the run up to 2010 in that you had an incoming government and political advisors who were looking for alternatives to conventional regulation by state. And also we had a context, if you think about it, where there wasn't any money. So you got no money and you don't want to regulate. Well, what's government supposed to do? Well, there you had ready um, a kind of potentially alternative or complementary technique using behavioral science. Some people will be, I think, slightly suspicious of a government unit that's behavioural insights. It sounds a little bit of a dark art. Any reassurances that it's not? <laughs> yeah, well, I, th- I think I would put it differently, which is that don't you think any government should understand how human beings work? I mean, governments are in the business generally of trying to affect um, people's behaviour. You want people to study well in school. You want businesses to grow. You want people to pay their tax on time. You want people not to commit crime and to eat healthily. If you think about it, it's almost always about human behavior. And the weird thing is the underlying, if you like, behavioral theories behind passing a law or using a tax or a subsidy are quite crude. And human beings are more complicated than that. So I think we we put it more humbly, which is we try to introduce into government thinking and policy thinking a more realistic model of human behavior. And hey, presto, that turns out to help a lot. And the other thing which has been very much characteristic of what we've done in the UK in the last six years is introduced a very empirical method. So particularly the use of randomized control trials and rather than just saying from a theory, we think this will happen. It's, well, why don't we test with real people and see if it actually works with real people? And by the way, do they feel comfortable with it too? I was just going to come on to that, actually, because there's an element of the testing that's fundamental to actually understanding what works best. And conversely, there's the other side of that where people might think that if they're aware of what's happening, that they're being used as guinea pigs and 
then there becomes a circular argument of whether they knew that, and then it alters the results, of course. But how do you get around that? Do you actually tell people that they're part of an experiment and this is what you're doing, or do you not? Well, there are a couple of aspects to what you're saying. So we have taken as policy, both HM government and the Pavel Insight team um, continues now as a social purpose company, um, which is just to be open about it. So we publish protocols. We're actually literally about to publish our annual report, which has results from 70 more interventions. So we'd be open about it at that level. Remember also it's democratically accountable. I mean, occasionally ministers look at something in a proposal and they say, no, we don't want to do that. Well, you know what? They're the ones who are elected by the public. Um, it's true that people don't necessarily know. If, if, for example, you receive a different letter from a tax authority, I mean, let's boil it down to what that really means. You know, Why would a tax authority send the same letter to a million different people? Why do they think that's the best possible, clearest, simple, easy to understand letter? Why wouldn't you test variations and see which one's more effective? But it's true that when you receive that letter, you won't know that some other people received a slightly different letter. In the same way that when you go to Amazon or whatever in a world of AB formatting, you're seeing different web pages. Um, you might know it broadly goes on, but you won't necessarily know in that particular case, you've seen this version relative to another one. So, you know, we handle it in terms of the transparency overall, but an individual won't necessarily be able to. And if you should think for practical reasons, that's pretty hard. So if you wanted to know on a motorway as to whether a different sort of sign would reduce speeding, you could in principle have the previous sign say, you're about to take part in an experiment. If you would like not to do so and see the next sign, please take the next exit and you will be able to avoid it. You know what I mean? For practical reasons, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, but it is nonetheless important that there are checks and balances to make sure this is being used appropriately. And in a government context, you know, fundamentally, that's also ministers and others saying, is that right? Does it feel right? Is it OK? So what have been the big successes then, would you say? Well, the one that most people know more than any other, perhaps, because we see it in our lives in the UK and increasingly other countries, is just changing defaults. So the most famous of which is pensions. So in the UK in 2012, we've moved from a system where you had to actively opt in to one where you still have choice, but now it's an opt out. And that has proved to be an utter game changer. More than five million extra people saving, particularly the young and some low-income groups who traditionally wouldn't have saved, and it's very popular too. The other key detail about it is that it is orders of magnitude more effective than the traditional instrument, which is a tax subsidy. So you can sort of see why it works. It's a bit of pain, it's an effort to fill in the paperwork, well, why don't we change it the other way around? So changing defaults is a key one. Other famous ones are these small changes in relation to the design of the tax system. You know, can we write letters that um, are more effective in terms of less threatening, but also encouraging. So just writing a one-line addition saying, you know, to people who are late paying their tax, most people pay their tax on time. You're one of the few yet to do so. Increases payment rates by 15%, um, we typically find. This year, we're just releasing results showing very similar effect in relation to businesses who receive such a letter. And so that'd be another one. Often many in health as well, and sometimes going for strategic policies. So prompts that make it easier for people to make healthy choices having very big impacts on behavior or giving them prompts so that if they're not going to make a medical appointment please let us know uh, and so on so a lot of these are quite simple nuts and bolts issues but when you add them up they amount to very big impacts now david have you been surprised by something that you have tried and it's not really quite worked out i suppose that in itself could be valuable of course but what has massively surprised you so surprises i think come in two forms one is things that didn't work 
and then sometimes things that work amazingly well, you might say. So we make a point of also publishing things that don't work. We think that's really important because not least, figure out things that don't work on a small scale before you take them to national policy. Um, and I'll give you an example. So we ran a, a trial based on a really nice idea, I think, from researchers at University of Plymouth, which is that um, to encourage people to insulate their homes and take up an offer of insulation, if you showed them an infrared picture of a house which showed all the heat leaking out, this would make it more real for people and they'd be more likely to take up the offer. So we ran a trial which, in which people either got a letter making the offer for the extra insulation, just a simple letter, um, and a, compared to one which shows you um, a home, particularly a home which has got you know infrared picture, all the heat leaking out, and then after it's been insulated. It's not literally their home, it's a home that looks a bit like their home. Interestingly, putting this infrared image made people significantly less likely to take up the offer. Now, why is that? That could be because it just distracts them. Sometimes images do that. Or it could be, actually, if you if you see an infrared image, it actually looks kind of cozy. <laughs> you know, it's kind of glowing yellow. And it might inadvertently convey the wrong message. So there are some things which we try and then they don't work. And that's really worth knowing because you can then not do them on a national scale. Of course, sometimes we've had some surprises of things which have worked to an extraordinary extent. And one thing we were certainly uncertain about, we help many other governments now across the world. We've been doing a lot of work, for example, in Latin America at the request of the World Bank to encourage people and businesses to pay their taxes in other countries. And we weren't sure if these techniques developed in the UK would work in those contexts. It turns out not only do they work, they work incredibly. They work orders of magnitude kind of effects. You get twofold, threefold, and sometimes much more than that increases in payment rates. Um, so that's a really interesting surprise and it's attracted a lot of attention. So do you think we're going to see a bit more of that there where the government, some might say, are uh, interfering in, in the free market? I wouldn't say interfering in the free market. I would say making a market actually genuinely work. So if you take a simple example like energy switching, if you try and do it and it turns out, oh, you've got to get this number, it's not on your bill, you've got to call them up. Essentially what's happening is that companies are making their money, you might argue, not by how efficiently they generate energy, but by how well they introduce friction and make it sticky and difficult for customers to move, right? That in some sense is not a well-functioning market. And it's all very well to believe in markets, but you have to have a sophisticated account of how markets operate. And so, that's a really deep and important area. So for example, how feedback operates in markets, consumer to consumer, to make them operate better. But in a world that is not populated by econs, econs of economic textbooks, but by human beings who have lots of other things to do than perfectly go and look at every single option in the marketplace. So I think that governments are and indeed should be involved in making sure that markets do work well for real human beings, and said not just for theoretical econs. Now, you've written the book, which is Inside the Nudge Unit, which is uh, the colloquial name for your behavioural insights team. That must be an intriguing read. (laughs) Well, I hope so. Yeah, and I mean, one of the reasons why I think it's important and I personally wanted to have the book written is that governments are increasingly using these techniques across UK departments and public services, but increasingly across the world. There's at least a dozen governments we know of that are starting to use these kinds of techniques. My own view is it's very important that governments be open about this. They think about, you know, what's the power and the effectiveness. They can make services much, much easier and more intuitive to use, but they can also 
give rise to concerns, both the behavioral element and the experimental element. So a book enables us to be, and certainly for me personally, for us to be very open about these approaches and also to rehearse some wider issues. So for example, I actually think it's quite important in some of these areas that governments kind of ask the public what they think and get permission. So even the change in default, say on pensions, I think one of the reasons why it was successful and has been taken up and was possible politically is because Adair Turner, when he ran his review, did an unusually sophisticated and good quality public consultation. In some ways you can think of it, the public was shown the behavioral evidence and sort of asked, what do you do? And they're like, well, actually, and wouldn't it be better to change the default? In some ways they gave government permission to make the change. So um, obviously I'm quite passionate about this stuff. I think it can be very powerful, but I think it's also important that we be open about it and it's ultimately for the public to sort of set some of those parameters um, about what's the right and wrong limit to things. Do you think there's an area that can't be uh, explored through behavioral science or do you think we're, we're actually literally are just scratching the surface of what's possible? I think both those things are true. I'm sure there are some areas where it's not going to be suitable. They are very technical for very particular reasons. But at the moment, I think we are very, very far from that frontier. And one of the things certainly within the behavioral insight team, or nudge unit, as you say, sometimes cool, is I think you can really see a movement from very nuts and bolts issues like, well, what's a better way of of wording a, a tax letter or to prompt people before they get into debt or whatever it will be, into much deeper issues, what are sometimes known as wicked problems in the policy community. So social mobility or disadvantage. And we've just released a series of trials, for example, encouraging young adult learners, many of whom found education hard, and how can you improve their performance? Or in relation to deep issues such as obesity or making markets work better for consumers. So I think we have a a long way to go. And let's face it, I mean, it's that almost all areas of policy and the interesting challenges in, in life tend to involve human beings and all their wonderful complexity. And so I think it's one of the great challenges for behavioral scientists is to go from these very simple applications into the really tough questions and, and to up our game. David, thank you very much for your time. That's brilliant. Thank you. There's much more in the Fortune Copilot members area. Don't forget to comment and share your ideas.